Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I didn't even have to look up. Everyone just seems to have drifted back. <laughs> well, I hope everyone is enjoying the, uh, the series we're doing this summer on Titus. <clears throat> um, it's a great little book, isn't it? Uh, before we begin to, to look at today's text, which Noreen read there. Noreen, what, 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 te- what, um, what version was that? Okay. All right. Very nice, wasn't it? Uh, before we look at it, we'll, we'll pray. And um, I, I had tried to keep it short, guys. I'm really sorry. I tried to keep it short, but it's... it's <laughs> it, and I know we're supposed to keep them short for the summer series, but it's ran again on me. It's like, a, it's like a wandering dog or something. I keep trying to pull him back, and he just keeps going. Father God, we pray that... Um, that we're going to be blessed this morning by your word. We pray, Father, that, um, you know, as Jason always prays in this church, that we will, we will go out the door as different people, um, softened by the word and motivated to, uh, to be zealous for God. Lord, we, we, we don't want to just know head knowledge, uh, understand the passage um, from a literary point of view, but, Father, we want it to change us. Uh, we want to spotlight us on stuff on us, Lord, perhaps that we're lacking in, perhaps areas where we need to develop more in, perhaps areas we need to move into, virgin ground that we need to move into that we're not exploring really. Lord, more than anything else, Father, help us from this passage today to uh, be more sensitive to the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, yeah, verses 11 to to 15 there in chapter 2 of Titus, um, Russell last week was, was speaking about the Apostle Paul and how he advising young and old in the church in Crete, these small little home churches, um, on what it looks like to live a good Christian life. In other words, Christian duty. And in verse 10, which was kind of a, kind of a nice verse to kind of uh, ease us into this passage, we saw that um, good behavior in the brothers and the sisters and the members of the church is, is like a jewel. It adorns the doctrine of God. And this week, we're going to look at that doctrine. So last week, we were looking at duty, and this week, we're looking at the doctrine which motivates the duty. Now, we have a little hint there. We have the word for, which is a little link word between the duty and the doctrine. And the reason why the Cretan folks should strive to live dutiful, transformed lives is because of what God has done to them or in them through his grace. And this is what we're looking at today. And I think the version that Noreen read there was the grace of God was, or has been revealed. The ESV says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So the verb appeared, or appear, in Greek is epitheno, which is where we get the word epiphany from. And being a former Catholic, I heard that word often and hadn't a clue at what it meant, the epiphany. But the epiphany, of course, recognizes the first appearance of Jesus Christ. So we get a big hint just from the language in that verse that the appearance of the grace of God has something to do with Christ's appearance. Uh, it might also make you think, you know, if this word or if this um, grace appeared, was there any grace before that? And of course there was. There was grace from the very beginning. There was grace from the garden. Even Peter in verse 1 or in verse 5, uh, sorry, verse 10 in First Peter 5 says that God is the God of all grace. And this word grace has kind of the meaning of epipheno of, of sort of something that was there all along, but it's suddenly now revealed. 
Like, you know when the sun gets up in the morning, you know the sun has, hasn't gone anywhere. It's just a, it hasn't quite appeared yet. Or in ancient Greek, it was also used kind of to give this idea maybe of a band of robbers that were lying in ambush. They're there, but they just haven't appeared yet. So this grace of God, amen, has appeared in the epiphany of Christ. When Christ walked this physical earth 2,000 years ago, the grace of God appeared in a different way. We saw his grace appear in birth and life and the death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was made gloriously visible. He was hinted strongly at, and he did make little appearances in the Old Testament, but this is it. It's all revealed now here. This is the big finale, Christ's first epiphany. Now, I suppose we're all, or a lot of us in this room are Christians, and we bandy the word grace over and back a lot. But if you were to turn to someone beside you and try and explain what grace is, um, it does have a kind of a wide usage and a wide way of, of explaining it, doesn't it? And maybe one of the faults that even uh, evangelicals, um, we sometimes fall into the trap of mis misusing the word grace. And I know, again, coming from a Catholic background myself, I wouldn't really have any idea of what grace really meant. I would have thought, just as the medieval Roman Catholic uh, thought, that grace really was kind of some kind of substance or spiritual stuff. Almost like the Star Wars. May the power be with you. May grace be with you. And I know certainly that's kind of the way I looked at grace. And that's the way that the medieval Roman Catholic Church promoted and thought grace. Um, they thought it as, that it was so, sort, some sort of spiritual drink that you kind of had to top up on. And when you were low in juice, <laughs> you topped up again through the sacraments. The idea that they thought at the time was that people were spiritually lazy. And seeing that we were supposed to be followers of God, we were supposed to be holy because that's what a holy God wanted. People, well, they just couldn't be bothered. And so would have to be filled up with the grace of God, with this spiritual stuff, with this substance to make them holy and to make them do pleasing works for God. Now, the reformers looked on it very, very differently. Um, they looked on prayers, for example, prayers to Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. And they said, no, 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 that's not the idea of grace at all. Grace is something, it's, it's not a thing, it's not a substance which God gives us. It's God's kindness in giving us Christ. So grace, the reformers thought, reformers thought, was God in his kindness giving us himself. Reeves, Michael Reeves, who, who describes these things brilliantly in one of his books, he says that grace is a shorthand way of speaking about the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately God gives himself. So the epiphany the appearing of Christ 2,000 years ago, for someone who repents and believes in the work that Christ did on the cross for covering or atoning or covering or hiding, God, hiding our sin from God and thus saving them from the penalty which our sin demands, this is the best news that we could hear. Now, some might be thinking, what would motivate God to do this, to send down his son, to save us, rebels who had our fist up to him for most of our lives before we came to a knowledge of him, what would motivate God to actually pull us up out of the mud of our sin 
and do this wonderful work of grace, giving us himself in Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's only one answer for that, and I'm sure some of you have preempted me. It's, it's love, isn't it? But the wonderful thing about this love and the wonderful thing about our God is this. Our God is triune. He's three persons and one being. He's not, for example, like Allah, who is one. Think of a God who is one, sitting up, as we tend mistakenly to probably think, of God sitting up on a puffy cloud with angels around them or whatever. But think of a God who is a singular God. How can a God like that love? He has no one else to love. Think of it for a second. The only way he can truly love, love sacrificially, is if he has someone in fellowship to love with. And we thank God that our God is triune. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they have communed, they have lived from eternity past together in sweet fellowship, loving one another. God the Father loving the Son, God the Father loving the Spirit. And this being reciprocated, this being folded back in on himself. So this kind of God is not a God who is selfish, not a God who is just loving himself, looking in the mirror every morning and saying, how wonderful and how glorious I am. He is a God who wants to share his love outward to the Son. And the Son, in turn, overflows with the Father's love and wants to share it with, as Hebrew says, with us, his brothers and sisters. What good news this is, that God is creator, but God is the also, by his nature, a God of love. So this grace of God is anchored in God's love. We can see in John 17, 26, that Jesus speaks uh, to the Father in the high priestly prayer in verse 26, and I love this. He's speaking to his Father. Jesus says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And listen to this. And I in them. God's love in them and Jesus himself in the believer. It's God's desire to love man, made in his image through Jesus. You know, even in the garden, think of it, how wonderful the story is. In the garden, when God turned his back on, or when man turned his back on God, God had all the right to turn his back on man and say, well, look it, this creation didn't quite work out. I might clean the slate and start it again. They're not reflecting who I am. But no, from the very beginning, God chose, because of his love, to bring us back into fellowship, to bring us back into, into friendship, to sort this problem of sin out. And this would happen many, many, many years later in Christ's first epiphany, when he would offer his own son on the cross to die for sin. And this is what Titus, or this is what uh, Paul brings to Titus's mind. You know, when we think of it uh, at times, even when we understand this gospel message, when we understand about the undeserved favor of God, his grace, we still try and think, you know what? 
And I know I felt like this for years before I came to the Lord, that I could deserve the love of God through good behavior, through good works. So as a Catholic, I used to try and do good stuff, do kind acts, pray, um, put my money in the collection every Sunday, and I thought by putting my money in the collection every Sunday that I would be pleasing God. But really, I didn't want to put my money in the collection every Sunday because as a young man, I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> but I felt there was some sort of push, some sort of force to do it, and I wasn't doing it with a glad heart. I was doing it to tick boxes. But there's nothing we can do to deserve God's favor or God's love. There's nothing we can do to impress God. There's nothing we can offer him. He owns everything. We have to come to the cross with empty hands of faith. Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's nothing we can offer. Even the best things that we can offer to Christ are just like filthy rags to him. He wants our heart. You know, I was in Galway a couple of weeks ago and I went into one of the big bookshops there. And I was aghast at the amount of self-help and Eastern mysticism and every other sort of self-help book. Or the bookshelves were heaving with them. and There was hardly anything, if anything, really any good biblical material. Now, I'm not saying that many of these books have anything at all good to say about how to give solace and how to give um, some spiritual counsel to someone. I'm not saying that at all. There is some good advice in some of these books. But many of them, as I was flicking through just the chapter titles, many of them fail magnificently when they encourage the idea of self-help, that there is something that you can do to clear up these problems that are inside. And these books have all different names for the different types of problems. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus speaks about this. He says that there's no way that you can look within yourself for good stuff, or that you can lift yourself up by your own bootlaces to try and gain favor with God. Jesus, in, in chapter 7, he says this, verse 21, he says, it's from within. The very thing that these books try and make you lift up, to try and make you, to try this withinness to anchor you in some sort of success in seeking God, it's, Jesus says, no, from very within, out of the heart of man, Jesus says, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Goodness me. If all of this stuff is within us, how can we possibly look to ourselves for anything spiritual? We can't. No self-help book, no looking within, no thinking positively will lift us out from the quaggy mire of our sin. Only God and Christ's re re resurrection can do that. Nothing else. No self-help can do it. Look at Ephesians. But God, Paul says, writing this wonderful letter, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's no way that these books can make something dead alive. Christ has to do that. And then, of course, this wonderful, wonderful verse in Ephesians, chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. And it gets better. The love that God shows for those who repent and believe in him is manifested or is shown. How? Well, by the way that God himself lives in you through the Spirit. Verse 12, read along there with me or, or track it with me. Verse, tw- verse 12 has the fingerprints of the Spirit all over it. This same grace that saves sinners, that saved many of us in this room, enables us to live godly lives. They're not two separate things. The power that rose Jesus from the grave, the power that gave you spiritual life, is the same power that lives you or that causes you to live a pleasing life. You're not saved and left on your own to go back again to a world of works where you try and please God under your own steam. That will never work. The Spirit is given to us. And this Spirit disciples us. It becomes our teachers. Look what Paul says here. It trains us to renounce, in verse 12, in other words, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to say yes, or to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Coming back to Michael Reeves, he's a very interesting point. And he speaks about, again, harking back to what he said earlier about this misunderstanding of grace, this kind of thinking of grace as some sort of spiritual spiritual red bull, some sort of spiritual drink that we need to top up on to feel holy. And he says that this sort of concept of grace gives rise to a huge problem, even in evangelical churches. He says it, it causes a huge tension between someone who hears the gospel and then who goes on to try and live a godly life. Because in the gospel, they're hearing stuff like, well, God has died on the cross for you. Your salvation is a free gift. And of course, they say, yes, that's, I'll take that free gift. Thank you very much. That's lovely because I like myself, as Mike Reeves, or Mike Reeves says, to paraphrase him, I love myself and I want good things for myself. So I'll take all that stuff. Thanks very much. But then they get confused when they find out that there's a call to holy living. They'll say, well, hang on a second. I've been called by God's gift to be a child of his. I've been given this gift, you say. What's all this stuff now about holy living? Unless we understand that grace is not something that we're, it's not a substance, but someone who's been given to us, we'll never get over, we'll never get over our fight or our battle with worldly passions, as Paul says, unless we have Christ himself, the Spirit himself living in us. Isaiah 32 says, and this is why we need the Spirit. Anything the Spirit touches, and this is his role, this is his job, anything he touches, he makes fruitful. Look at Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 15. Isaiah says, The Spirit is poured on from upon high, and the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. Isn't that wonderful? Training us in righteousness. Training us to say no to worldly passions and training us to say yes to godly living. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And training, as anyone will tell you who's involved with sports, is tough. It hurts your muscles. It's not something that you like after a certain time. Maybe you like the first half or the first three quarters of a training session, but the last quarter, you're going to feel those muscles rip 
with heat. That, that lactic acid builds up and you want to stop. But it's the ripping in the muscles that actually make you stronger and fitter. You have to go through that pain to get the benefit. It's the same with people in this church and this room at this moment who have kids. I'm sure when you train them, you have to do two things. You encourage them and you discipline them. And sometimes disciplining is not easy. You love your children, but you know that for them to grow into normal, mature adults, you're going to have to discipline them at times, many times. There will be failures. When we train or when we try to say no to worldly passions, there will be failures. There will be grand failures. As anyone who tries to live this life or who lives this life, even under the power of the Spirit, can attest to. We are not going to succeed all the time. But Paul calls us to a life of self-control. And it's interesting, in this short epistle, it's mentioned four times. I was reading First and Second Timothy there a couple of weeks ago, and I was struck by the fact, the amount of time that godliness is mentioned there. Self-control is mentioned a lot in Titus. Paul, in verse 13, let's have a look at it, tells Titus that the grace of God trains them. Now, to do two things we saw, to say no to ungodly living and to say yes to godliness. But also as interesting, trails, trains them, he says, while they wait. For, as he puts it, while they wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is one of the most plain and powerful texts in the Bible that shows that Jesus Christ is God. Not that he's God the Father, but he's God the Son. He has the same essence, but he has different roles. Just as the Spirit's role is to make us fruitful, Christ has his role as well. He appeared briefly in grace, and he will appear again at his second epiphany at the end of times in glory. And we live between these two epiphanies. We live in these in-between times. And the Cretans were called to live and walk by the Spirit, saying no to worldly passions. And it's no different from us today. We may be 2,000 nearer to the second epiphany, but we're still living in the in-between times. And we're called to access the power of the Spirit. And notice then in verse 14, Paul shifts slightly from the grace of God. He says, this Jesus, he says, who gave himself for us. Who gave himself. Think of that. Jesus Christ gave himself, himself for us. He didn't hold anything back. It wasn't half-hearted. He didn't come to the cross begrudging. He didn't have conditions attached to saving you. He could only offer one thing, and he had access to everything because he is God, but he could only offer one thing. But boy, what a thing. It was himself, and he did that. He did it fully. He did it freely. And something that we could never do, he did it joyfully. I think it's Hebrews that says that Jesus went on the cross with joy to endure what he knew that was, that was to happen. Isn't that amazing? And he did it for you in this room. He did it for anyone who seeks his faith, who repents and believes. There are people around Galway City at this time, and we prayed about this this morning, who are dormant Christians. And God will bring them to life. 
and they will delight in his grace and in the favor that he showed them. There's nothing they can do to wake themselves up out of their own spiritual death. God must do it. But God did it. He sent his only begotten son, his only son, Jesus, so that he could bring sinners, he could bring rebels back into friendship again. Paul needs to remind Titus of this. Because Paul knows full well that Titus is going to have a real struggle in bringing order to these churches and encouraging holy living through the Spirit. It's interesting that after Paul says that Christ gave himself, he then says Christ gave himself for two reasons, two purposes. The first, if you see there, is to redeem us from all lawlessness. And the second reason why Christ gave himself fully is to purify a person for his own possession. Sorry, to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is Christ's mission. This was his goal. This was his role. Now, redeem is not a word we use nowadays a lot unless you want to redeem a token in Tesco or something. But in the old days, redemption had a much weightier meaning. It was used in the slave market. And it meant to free from captivity by paying a ransom. So Christ has broken the bondage, the chains that held you down because of your sin and your guilt that comes with that sin. And he has, he has willingly given himself on the cross so that your chains could be broken, your bondage broken. And if you're looking... Romans chapter 6, when you go home this evening, you can see a lot, of, a lot of allusions to this bondage. But in that entire verse there, verse 13, do you notice anything? Do you notice all the Old Testament language there? Gave himself up, harking back to the Passover lamb. Redeem, recalling Egyptians or the uh, Israelites' redemption from the slavery in Egypt. Lawlessness or law, harking back to Sinai, and look at a people for his own possession, recalls the apple of God's eye, the Israelites. Commentator John Stott, listen to this, he says this, Thus we today enjoy a direct, a direct continuity <clears throat> with the Old Testament people of God, for we are his redeemed people. He is our Passover, he's our Exodus, and he's our Sinai. Well, these are the things that Titus has to declare in verse 15. He, as an elder, will have to exhort. He'll have to encourage the flock with all authority, the very authority that Paul is giving him to do. And he says, let no one disregard him. I'd say that the Old Testament, or I'd say that the um, false teachers that had infiltrated these churches were probably teaching an awful lot of, yeah, a bit like Galatians, grace, but you had to have works as well. Yeah, you had to have grace, but you had to do certain things from the Old Testament. And maybe that's why Paul calls up this connection between the Old Testament and these Cretans that were trying to live out and trying to battle some of these false doctrines that they were hearing. That Jesus was fulfilling everything of the Old Testament. It was completely Jesus. It was all Jesus. There was no need for works to gain any sort of favor with God. Not that Paul is ignoring works, because as we have seen previously, he is looking for a people that are zealous for God. Paul was passionate about his mission. 
And if you could summarize his mission into one verse, we can see it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we teach, Paul said, Christ crucified. When Paul, this is really interesting, I was reading Philippians a couple of nights ago, chapter 1. And, and, and even just as grace sometimes is associated with a thing or a substance, sometimes even evangelicals ourselves, we can think of heaven as sort of a thing as well, a place that we can, a bit like paradise to a Muslim, we can have nice things that we're aspiring to go to this place. But it's interesting, Paul's mission was to preach Christ crucified. And Paul's goal, the thing that was motivating Paul, apart from the Spirit, was this, this idea in his head that what was at the end of the narrow road was Christ. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't something to be, to be had and enjoyed as we, we would go out and have a good meal and listen to a good piece of music and have a good game of football or hurling then and, and, and get good things for our, you know, you know what I mean, get, get stuff or do stuff. Listen to what he said in Philippians. He said in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. In other words, Paul was in a bit of a dilemma there. He wanted to stay on and minister to the people around him, but he also wanted to be, and look at he says, my desire, he said, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul's gift, Paul's desire, Paul's reward was Christ, and that's our reward. When we come to the narrow path at the end of our lives, and we're taken up, either by the rapture or we die a natural death, or <laughs> as Christians understand an unnatural death, we are with the Lord. Jesus will be our prize, not some stuff. And finally, by way of application, we have to let in this room the grace of God be our teacher. We have to live through the power of the Spirit, upright and godly lives. We have to say yes to that and no to worldly passions. How can we do this? First, we must remind ourselves that when we battle worldly passions, when we battle slothfulness, greed, anger, lust, covetousness, addictions, and all this other kind of ungodly stuff, we have to realize that we can't have any, any long-term victories if we're doing it under our own steam. Maybe you're a very disciplined person before you came to Christ. Maybe you think, well, I can use my discipline to improve my Christian life. I can use my discipline to motivate me to do stuff. And discipline is good. And Christians are required to be disciplined people. But to try and do it under your own steam, you will never get any long-term victories. And what will you find happening then is you'll probably find yourself falling into apathy again and discouragement and ultimately failure. Because I think I think I was speaking the last time when I was preaching here is you as, as a shepherd, a shepherd cannot seemingly drive sheep. Now I'm not a shepherd. We did have sheep when I was young. And we did have a dog, but all our dog did was scare them. So ended up the, myself and my three sisters, we were the dogs. We used to, to round up our sheep. But I think that my father's instruction to us to go out and round up the sheep was totally inappropriate because we never could round them. We ended up getting flattened by them as they broke through the ranks or whatever. But seemingly, good shepherds know that sheep follow the shepherd. 
So a pastor or an elder cannot bully the congregation to, come on, follow Jesus. Let the Spirit control your life. Neither can you as a brother or sister exhort and encourage someone who is feeling maybe a bit down or discouraged to, come on, cop on to yourself now. That can never do it. We can never bully our brothers or our sisters into motivating themselves for holy living. That has to come from the heart. And that has to be fueled by something other than just exhortation. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, speaking about this, he says that we must walk in the Spirit. He says, but I say, Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify or you won't satisfy the deeds of the flesh. Well, what is this walking in the Spirit then? Well, walking in the Spirit, when you read your Bible, walking in the Spirit is just shorthand for saying living. Living lives dedicated are under the power of the Spirit. It means killing worldly passions. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So when you were born again, it was the Spirit who gave you life. So now you must live letting him control your life. You mustn't oppose him. You mustn't grieve him, stress him out. You must trust him. If he was good enough, if he was, if he was gracious enough, if he was loving enough to save you, to give your dead body, to give those bones, as Ezekiel said, flesh, and make them rise up again, surely this spirit will take care of you. Surely this spirit will give you victories in your daily life. This battle against worldly passions. Now, I know as most people in this room know, that yielding yourself up to the control of the Spirit is not easy. We all struggle with this. Our sin frustrates us. It handicaps us. It holds it back. Even though victory has been had on the cross, sin in our lives, and we can all attest to this, it hasn't just disappeared and gone away. You know, we fight three enemies in this world. We fight the world, we're fighting our flesh. And we're fighting the wiles and the plans of Satan. But we fight against our flesh. This sin that still rears up its ugly head, it discourages us, doesn't it? I mean, speaking to people in this church, it plants doubts in our heads of whether we really are a child of God. But take encouragement from this, that even if you feel discouraged, even if you feel at times that you're not a child of God, that even by those thoughts and those, those ponderings in your mind, they're all positive really in their own way in that they attest to this. They attest that you're sensitive to the Spirit and they attest that the Spirit is working in you, that He hasn't left you. Isn't that right? Before we came to a life in Christ, Sin just flew over our heads. Unless we were actually perhaps causing an awful lot of hurt to someone that we could directly see in front of us, perhaps a family mem member, we didn't really care about the consequences of our actions, as long as it didn't hurt anyone too badly. But when we, became or when we become Christians, we are so sensitive and we get more sensitive to sin as we live our lives. Remember Paul says, he called himself the chief of sinners the Apostle Paul. 
So it's a good thing if you feel discouraged by your sin. That's what you should be feeling. Confess your sin to God and repent. Seek someone in this church that you trust, that you can speak to on a personal level and pour out your heart to them. Pray with them. Pray to God yourself. Pray without ceasing. If you've hurt someone, ask for their forgiveness. If you've been hurt, be quick to forgive. Paul says in Romans 8, 38 to 39, and this is wonderful. I read this verse when I'm discouraged. You have to preach the promises of God to yourself. Look what Paul said. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What else can we say? What else is there to say? This is the ultimate encouragement. Since this is the case, it's not the place of the Christian to despair. We might be discouraged, but we cannot despair. We must think of sin when it defeats us as an enemy who has been slain on the cross. But this enemy has not accepted defeat. It's still a remaining reality in our lives, and it still bites us in the heel. But ultimately, he is defeated. Let the Spirit take your burdens. Lean on him. Christ warned his deposits, or his disciples, that they would have to endure troubles. So brothers and sisters in this room, don't be surprised when troubles come your way. Don't be surprised that the closer you walk to Christ, the more Satan will try and shake you off that path, the more obstacles he will put in your way. But don't worry, because the Spirit is called the Helper, the Comforter. He's the Advocate. He's your lawyer in front of God. When Satan comes and points a finger at you at some shortcoming in your life, in some way perhaps that sins are having victories in your life, he will say, well, that sin is forgiven, bro forgiven brother and sister. Go on in my strength. Finally, let's encourage ourselves from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, since we, have surrounded, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to the cross and look to Jesus for encouragement. In the words of this hymn, Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, his grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father God, help us to lean on the Spirit in battling our worldly passions. Help us to lift up the remembrance of your Son on the cross who gave himself for us, 
completely, fully, joyfully, wholeheartedly. What a thought, Lord, that the creator and the sustainer of this planet and of the universe, God himself, has your thoughts, has your problems, has your goals, your aspirations, your pinings. He has and will mold them according to his will if you let him through the Spirit. Father, help us to be a people who are malleable, who are soft, who are zealous for righteous things, being motivated by a conviction that Jesus lives in us and Jesus enables us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.